It could mean trouble if there weren't some signs to get us back on the right path. And uh, I think if we're honest, when we're on a detour in life, it's, it's easy to begin questioning God. You know, God, this is just a waste of time. What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Why do you have me in this particular position of life? And it's good to remember that some of the greatest people in the Bible that God used had these so-called detours, but were necessary in God's plan for their development. Joseph, if you add up the years, seemed to be about 13 years before he got out of his bad place of being sold into Egypt, of being a slave in Potiphar's house, and then being a prisoner. About 13 years, he had to wait for things to really begin to click in his life. And boy, did they ever, once he got through that time. But what if Joseph had just complained and murmured and grumbled the entire 13 years? We don't see any evidence of that. In fact, we see him serving God no matter where he was, in a cheerful spirit, working hard for the Lord. Moses had to wait 40 years, didn't he? At the age of 40, he was ready to start delivering Israel. He wanted to go and fight for his people, and he kind of did it in his own strength. And uh, he killed an Egyptian, fled for his life. Forty years later, God meets him at that burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and says, I want you to go and lead my people Israel. Forty years of what? It's a big detour. He was 80 when he started his life's work. 80. It's kind of a long detour, wasn't it? But all that, we believe, was preparation for Moses. Preparation. The Bible tells us that he was the humblest man on the entire earth. No one was more meek than Moses. God used that time. Uh, shepherding sheep for 40 years in the desert, that's got to do some humbling things for a person. David was anointed king. He had to wait many years before he actually claimed the throne of Israel. Paul, we know, spent three years in Arabia before he could begin his ministry. But he was taught by Jesus. And even Christ himself, from a human perspective, seems to have um, lived in obscurity uh, for 30-some years before he was publicly revealed to Israel. Maybe you feel like that right now, hedged about. Maybe you feel like you're looking for the open door, you're waiting for your ship to come in, waiting for things to really happen. Maybe you look around at others and you begin to feel a little envious or jealousy towards them. That you could do that better, and, and they're in a place where you'd like to be, and um, for whatever reason, your time has not come. I've heard college students, Bible college students, talk about why, why do I need to go to Bible college? God wants me to get out there and win souls now. Why do I have to go and train? Why do I have to go and prepare? And sometimes they'll chafe at the uh, tests and the quizzes and the long uh, years waiting to graduate. Um, why do I have to have this job? You know, when God wants me to be in full-time ministry, why do I got to work this secular job? When I know this is where God wants me to be. And sometimes we can chafe about that. My teachers told me, and maybe you've heard it too, a call to serve is also a call to prepare. If God's going to use us, he's going to prepare us. He wants us to be prepared for service because serving God and proclaiming his word and ministry is not easy. And we have to be ready. We have to be properly prepared. And God sometimes does that through these detours in life. I want to call that the hand of restraint. Sometimes God's hand of restraint is over us. Uh, at um, D. James Kennedy's church in, uh, in uh, Coral Ridge, Florida, the pulpit uh, there, it's Presbyterian church, and there's a large hand over the pulpit. 
And uh, if you don't know exactly what it is, sometimes it's hard to recognize what exactly is that. But it's meant to symbolize God's hand over uh, the preacher, uh, the message from the pulpit. And uh, I think that's, it can be a helpful symbolism. God's hand of restraint. That I can't just get up here and say whatever I want. I can't just get up here and do whatever I want. Nor can any of us in our lives do whatever we want when we're servants of Jesus Christ. We can only do what he wants us to do. And sometimes there's freedom to proclaim and preach and serve in whatever areas God has for me. But sometimes there's a time of preparation. God wants me here, daily doing this, maybe menial task, working in this area in a way that may not bring me the most joy. But that hand of restraint, I believe, is going to be on a believer at some point in his or her Christian life. God's going to be teaching us how to walk in the Spirit. God's going to teach us how not to depend upon our own flesh. God's going to teach us how to truly depend upon Him and develop a deeper prayer life, a deeper relationship with Him. And then, when God knows the time is ready for us, He'll put us in that place of service. In Corinthians, Paul was thankful for tribulation in his life, which might have been what he might have considered a detour, just a real rough road, a real long, hot, wearying journey. And he thanked God for the tribulation because it made him look to God for comfort. And then he received that comfort from God. And according to 2 Corinthians 1.4, he was able to take the lessons learned from the comfort God gave him after his trials to help other people in their trials. And so it was preparation. His suffering was preparation to be a blessing to other people. And so these fruitless periods of our life really can be the most fruitful because they're preparing us for what God has for us. I like what somebody said, you can't be a testifier until you've gone through a test of fire. The Bible says they became discouraged. In fact, the New King James says, very discouraged. And again, don't feel sorry for them. That's not like uh, uh, somebody who really needs a, a hug, uh, somebody who needs to be um, cheered up. Um, The intent of this is there was perhaps great impatience here. Um, And if there were tears, and as you, as every parent knows, there can be genuinely sorrowful tears, and there can be tears of rebellion. Ever seen a rebellious tear? Tears of anger. This person is not crying because he's broken, broken and sad. This person is crying because he's defiant. And I can't get my way. And I'm just so upset about that. And tears begin to come. Tears can be good tears. And tears can be rebellious tears. These people, I believe, if there were any tears, were crying out rebellious tears. Notice it says, as a unit, the soul of the people. In a sense, they were one in this mindset. They didn't like where they were. They didn't like God's guidance or Moses' leadership, and they were questioning why they were even here. Notice what they say. Um, The people spoke against. By the way, that's the word blasphemy. To speak against. To speak against. They were blaspheming or speaking against God and against Moses. Now let's pause there for just a second. They They speak against God. If you take a look... In the chapters surrounding this chapter, it's always the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord said this. The Lord did this. In the previous chapter, this chapter, all the way to the end, it's always the Lord except right here. 
rather than referring to God as Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant name specifically given to Moses to share with the Israelite people, our special, maybe uh, precious name of God that shows we're his children, he's our heavenly father, he's the self-existing one who's revealed himself to us of all peoples, they complain against Elohim. Elohim. Now, Elohim was a generic term for God. We find it in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim. It's a name of majesty, but it wasn't the covenant name. In a sense, they're saying, they're, they're complaining against that God instead of our Lord. Can you tell the difference there? There's a, di- there's a subtle difference there. The same person. But what they've done is they've distanced themselves by using that term. Not a bad term, but they had a better one. They had a more personal one. It's like saying that woman versus my dear wife. Depending on our attitude, it might be one or the other. Right? And so they were discouraged. Uh, The term there can also mean cut short. You ever hear someone say, don't get short with me, young man? You ever hear somebody talk like that? They're cut short. The idea, idea has a, of a harvesting. Um, to harvest a field is to cut it short. To, um, to take away um, all these good benefits and just leave a little bit there that's kind of hard and prickly and sticking up there. And, and the idea has to do with impatience and, and yes, discouragement, of course, as well. Cut short. This expression was used of God talking to Cain in the Garden of Eden before he slew uh, Abel. Why are you, literally in that case, short-nosed? Why are you short? Why are you being so short with me? See, what these people had missed was the truth that God makes a promise. What was the promise? I'm going to lead you into the wilderness and I'm going to supply your needs. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to take you to a new land. God had made the promise. They had believed it. They left the, uh, they left the uh, land of Egypt with the ten plagues and the great hand of the Lord delivering them. They had anticipated this place. What they lacked was the patience to wait for it. That the gift was not going to come across to them right away. It would come in God's perfect time. Perfect timing. You know, of all those deadly sins... They should have probably included this one, shouldn't they? Impatience. I mean, that's got to be one of the deadliest that we struggle with. Again, it's not against any laws to be impatient. But boy, it can lead to some really bad stuff if we let impatience carry the day. And so they became complainers. It says in verse 3, the people spoke against. They spoke again. Now that could have been maybe verbally or maybe it was in their hearts as well. But eventually it comes out. Because what do they say? Verse 5, why have you, speaking uh, to Moses, and against God, it says. Now, we believe they're probably talking physically to Moses in this case, but it's obviously reflecting on God, and God takes it personally. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Whose plan was that? Moses or God's? That was God's plan. To die in the wilderness. Now, that's their thoughts. That wasn't God's plan, wasn't it? Was it? They look at their circumstances and impatience to say, all you've done so far, forgetting all the miracles, all the supplies. In fact, they forgot about the great victory in verses 1 through 3. They just had. They just had a victory over king of Arad, the Canaanite. But now life's getting its hot. 
It's hard. I've got some rocks in my sandal. This hurts. The babies are crying. The sheep need to be watered. Why did you bring us here to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And then there's the sting. Oh, they should have left this one out. They had to say it, though. We can't stand this miserable manna. Miserable, light, worthless. In in the Hebrew thinking, something that was heavy had value. Um, Metals, gold, silver. Things that were worth something had a weight to them. You know, you could feel the weight. Things that were light... They didn't have much value. They wouldn't have appreciated paper money in those days. It had to be coinage, right? That's how they use. That's the transparent, uh, the uh, currency. They had coinage. It was heavy, valuable. Chaff would blow with the wind, but the heavier grains would stay behind because that has value. Light things were worthless. And uh, some translations have this light bread, and I, uh, the idea that it has no value to us. They had forgotten that this manna that came down every day, except the Sabbath, was and contained every single thing they needed. I would love to have gotten a piece of that and have, have them analyze all the vitamins and minerals that probably were in that manna that sustained them and met their needs, and they can prepare it in a variety of ways. Um, they could even fry it, or they could eat it raw, or they could bake it. Uh, and it had a very sweet taste, it's described. But they got to the point where they said, we hate it. Hate it. In a land by their own words of no water and no food, they had their daily sustenance met divinely, supernaturally by God, and they came to despise it. Well, isn't that human nature? To become familiar with the divine to the point, I don't need that anymore. I want something else. Uh, and that's a danger for us, oh, those of us who have grown up in a Christian home. We can get to the point where we're so familiar with these stories, so familiar with the songs, except for Ring the Bells of Heaven, uh, familiar with other things in church that they begin to not only have no meaning for us, but we actually come to despise them. And that, my friends, is a very dangerous place to be. Nothing is easier than fault-finding. You don't have to have any talent, any education, no brains, no character, no self-denial, and you can set yourself up in the grumbling business. Isn't that true? You don't have to have any prerequisite to become a grumbler and a complainer. Because you don't have to have solutions. You don't have to have solutions. Complainers almost never have solutions. Eh, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this? You got a better idea? Got a better plan? No, but I like complaining about the system I'm in right now. What they were saying, number one, was I don't like God's planning. Really, it was God who brought them out of Egypt. It was God who was leading them through his servant Moses. They didn't like God's planning. They didn't like how God was running his universe when it affected them. They didn't like the fact that this is hard. And they began to say that the life of slavery might have been better. We had plenty to eat. We had plenty to drink down in Egypt as slaves. Is this what this is going to be? We're just going to wander around out here in this wilderness and eat this disgusting wafer every morning and every night and every lunch and have nothing to drink? It almost makes you seem, sounds like they're saying, 
I was better off before I got saved. I was better off before God came into my life. Because this is hard. I don't like God's planning and I don't like God's provision. The idea of loathing there means disgust or to abhor. The Hebrew verb has the idea of severing. I cut it off from me. I don't want anything to do with it. No more. That's enough. I don't want any more of this light bread, this valueless bread. They'd have had a hard time on a Thanksgiving day, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have had anything to be thankful about. What would they have said going around the table? I got nothing. How about you? No, nothing. What about you? Nothing to be thankful for. Ungrateful hearts will find fault anywhere. So, not only do we see here the reality of sin in their lives, evidenced by their response. By the way, that's what hardship does. Hardship reveals the sinfulness of our hearts. If everything had been going fine, they'd have been very pleasant people. Banquet tables at every stop, bathroom breaks, everybody's fed, all the babies are happy, everything's wonderful. Uh, You wouldn't see that sin. But hard, difficult trails and detours in life bring it out, what was hidden there all along. It didn't make them ungrateful. It didn't make them impatient and discouraged. They were already of that mindset, and this just revealed the character that they did not have. Number two, not only the reality of sin, but see the inevitability of suffering. God's judgment is very clear. Notice what happens next. So, verse 6, so, or therefore... Because of this, I, I kind of think of it as the very last thing they said, but it's the whole attitude. God strikes back. So the Lord, notice he's called the Lord here, not just God. He's the Lord, he's their God, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people died. You ever been to camp when somebody sees a snake? Oh, it's all over the camp. Everybody's heard about the snake. Where was it? Uh, who saw it? Did you kill it? Right? Um, growing up in Virginia, we'd go to camp. There was always snakes at camp, always snakes at camp, especially after a rain when the, the, uh, the uh, lower lands near the water, near the rivers would flood and the snakes would all come up. We had three poisonous snakes in Virginia. We'd have the copperhead, you'd have the uh, water moccasin, and, of course, the rattlesnake. And uh, if anybody saw a snake, it was always a poisonous one, right? Always. Even though it was very rare to see the poisonous ones, it was always a poisonous snake. And uh, people always ran from them. And they had to be dispatched. Well, I can imagine, as soon as somebody saw the first snake in the camp, an alarm went out. And there's one over here. Right? There's one over here. There's one over here. There's one over here. And soon, there were so many, they couldn't avoid them. And they'd walk by in their sandals and zap, they'd be bitten. The Bible calls them fiery. It may have been because of their color. Like the Gila monster is a bright orange and black pattern, perhaps as a warning because of its venomous bite. Um, but more likely, most scholars seem to think the fiery quality of these serpents is because of their bite and the pain that it induced. It was poisonous. These were poisonous reptiles. I remember as a kid going to a thing called Snakes Alive. This guy would come through our area. He'd hit the public schools, and he'd come to the libraries, and he had all these snakes. He would bring them out and put them on the ground in front of you. We'd be in chairs or on the floor, and you'd be like, well, there's a snake right there, and he'd show you the snakes. He'd bring poisonous ones, too. And on one occasion, he had a, a couple of copperheads out there. And copperheads are, are poisonous, of course. And um, he had it on the table in front of him. He didn't let that one on the floor. And as he swooped his hand over it, we saw the snake rise up and bite him right in front of us. And not everyone caught it, but the older ones we saw that snake just got him. And you could see how he pulled his hand back. He kept on with the program. He did not stop. He later explained, 
Yeah, some of you might have seen, as we finish this program, one of you seen that uh, I got bit by this copperhead. Uh, but I want you to know the venomous, the venom of the copperhead is a much slower acting venom than, say, the rattlesnake or the cobra. And um, I knew that I had some time, and afterwards he got some medical assistance um, pretty quickly. And he didn't die, uh, which is interesting. But now that's a manly man there. He can bit by a copperhead and continue on with the show. Um, fiery bite. The Bible makes it clear that these people knew why the snakes came. They knew why. When, when our hearts are not right with God, and we've uttered some things in our hearts maybe that we shouldn't have said, very often we'll recognize the, the hand of God is chastening us. It may not be a snake bite. It may be a very guilty conscience. Uh, it may be an illness. James talks about people becoming physically ill when they're, when they're not living by faith, not living for God. God will use a painful experience to get our attention. Did these snakes get their attention? Absolutely. Did it affect just one or two individuals because it was only one or two individuals involved? No, it affected everybody. The whole congregation was wrong. And God was judging the entire congregation. And it took a fiery bite. It took something painful, something that hurt, something that knocks the wind out of myself, something that knocks me flat on the ground for me to recognize the path I'm on is the wrong path. That's why this is happening. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time we get an illness that that's a sign of God's judgment. But I like to remind people when I do visit them in hospitals that sometimes God does use physical health as a way to get our attention back on God. And sometimes I'll ask a person in a hospital bed, is there anything in your life right now that you think may be God working in your heart to get your attention? Any unconfessed sin? Anything in your life that's not right? That God may be using this illness has put you in the hospital on your back that he's trying to get you to deal with. Anything at all. I've never had anyone say yes. But I think it's important to ask the question. There are many people lying on cots and blankets on the ground because of these fiery serpents. And as the others begin to see the snakes and the people lying down, having been bitten, dying in agony, sweats and fever and all that goes along with the poisonous reptile's bite, some begin to see this is because of what we've done. Notice what they say. Therefore... Prayer of supplication, number three. Therefore, the people came to Moses. Now notice how they, they were, notice carefully the words. We, notice the pronoun we had in verse number uh, 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 five. You, you are the problem. You brought us up out of Egypt. And now notice in verse seven, we have sinned. Notice they identify the offender. They're not blaming anybody else. People do that a lot today. Well, it's not really our fault. It was just, uh, you know, this is really, you know, I, I'm not used to the heat. Or blame it on something else. We, and then they say, have sinned. Word means to stray from the path, to fall short of the mark, to miss the standard. We have, and then they use the exact same words that they have up in verse uh, 4, uh, verse 5, spoken against. They called their sin what it was. And that's what confession is. The Bible says in verse 5, they spoke against God and Moses. And here they say, here's our sin. We have spoken against 
The Lord? Do they call him God there? They call him the Lord there, don't they? Now, they're not trying to distance themselves anymore. They're trying to draw closer to him. We, we want the Lord now. We, we love the Lord. We know our sin. We want to get things right with God. And they call him the Lord now. He's not just Elohim. He's Yahweh. He's our covenant God. We have spoken against the Lord and against you, speaking of Moses. They identified their sin, and they've identified the offense. They've identified the offended, who is God and Moses. They offended God himself, and they offended God's appointed leader. They knew that was part of the problem. It was not just their complaint against God. It was their complaint against Moses, who God had set up over them. I find it interesting that when we complain against God's appointed leader, that also brings about God's disapproval. We have to be careful about that. To complain about hard times and to blame those difficulties on God's appointed leader may find ourselves in the very place that these Israelites found themselves, in a place of chastening, a place of judgment. So they've named their sin, they've named the offender and the offended, and now they asked to be forgiven. And so they say, pray to the Lord, again, they use his name, the covenant God, twice now, that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Question, did he take away the snakes? It seems like eventually they probably weren't a problem anymore. But that's not the immediate solution, was it? Their solution was for the snakes to be removed. But God had a different solution, didn't he? He could have easily removed the snakes, couldn't he? But that's not what he chose to do. In the ten plagues, when Moses prayed for God to take away the frogs, take away the grasshoppers, he did that. He took away the frogs. He took away the grasshoppers. He did something unique here. So the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, how he did that, but we know that it was made out of bronze, uh, a, a mixture of brass and something else. I can't remember the other metal. Anybody know what that was? Brass and something else? What is it? Copper? Maybe, maybe so. Um, what people think Moses may have been able to do was make a very crude sand, bla- a sand mold. He would have taken one of these actual dead snakes, or hopefully it wasn't alive still, and placed it in a, in a mold with compressed sand all around it, like people might make cast iron cookware today. Yeah, you've heard about the cast iron before. Uh, they use sand to make those things. And then, and then tie it up real tight. Somehow, um, the technology, from what we understand, would have been there for Moses to be able to do this, uh, and making uh, molds out of molten metal, and then poured in the hot bronze into the mold, which would have instantly vaporized the flesh material of the snake inside, but remained intact by the sand, the silica. And then to let it cool and open it up, and there you have a replica of this bronze serpent. Now, maybe he could have done it some other way by having it chipped and carved. I'm not sure how they could have even done that with bronze. Um, Very, very hard metal. But that's one possibility they would have done. So however he did it, God knew that he could do it, and it was made out of bronze. It was a very hard metal, high temperatures to melt that. And then it says he set it on a pole. This is what God tells Moses to do. Make the bronze serpent, set it on a pole. Sometimes you see the pole 
uh, as a long, a long rod up in the sky and probably with a cross beam to hold the serpent on. Maybe the serpent had a round part. They could wrap it around there. If it was a straight pole, uh, then Moses would have probably just wrapped the serpent somehow in the mold process, made it so he could tie it onto that stick somehow. Whatever the picture was, it was on a tall pole and the snake was a fastened, this bronze replica of that serpent was fastened to the top of that pole. And then God says, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made the bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Why go through all this trouble? By the way, that image of the, of the, uh, the staff and the snake wrapped around it is a symbol of healing today, isn't it? We see that on ambulances and rescue vehicles. Called the caduceus. Uh, sorry, something just fell out of my pocket here. I think it's my, my wireless here. Put it in my pocket this time. So the caduceus, a representation that we use even today to remind us of the healing that came from this passage in the Old Testament. Now, what are the words God uses here? Look. You shall look at it. All that means is to see it. If you're bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, all you have to do is look at it. You don't have to crawl over to it. You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to make a sacrifice. Just look at it. And whoever looks at it, if he's been bitten, he will live. Poison will be counteracted. Now this passage until Jesus came along, was probably just one of the many interesting passages of the Old Testament. But Christ himself took this passage and applied it to himself. And if you take a look with me at John chapter 3, we'll see how Jesus does this. So in his discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus is explaining his upcoming death on the cross. And Nicodemus has just said, how can these things be? How can someone be born of the Spirit or born again? And verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you not the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Do you know about the work of the heart, the work of the Spirit? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak that what we know. And testify what we've seen, but you do not receive our witness. Speaking of the Jewish leaders. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And then Jesus goes to this illustration. And as, or in a similar way, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness from numbers that we just looked at, even so, or in the same manner, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then that famous verse, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That verse is rooted in our passage in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. When Jesus gave John 3.16, he was thinking Numbers 21. 
that whoever believes, just like those bitten people, could stare at that, look at that cross, uh, that, uh, that pole with the snake on it, and if it did have a cross beam across, it would have been a great picture of the coming cross of Jesus. It doesn't have to be, though. But that would have been great if it was. But to look at that serpent on the, on the tall pole and to be healed. You know, there are... I'm sure God in that passage in Numbers 21 knew there were still some complainers in heart. They didn't like the snake bites, but they still didn't have a right attitude. Do you think having to look at the cross would have been something they would have said, I'm not looking at that cross. I still hate the manna. I'm not looking at that cross. I'm not looking at that snake. I'm not looking at that pole. But those who believed God's word, those who were seeing their own lostness, their helplessness, they would have said, yeah, where is it? Show me. I know I'm dying. I know I'm poisoned. I know I'm lost. Show me that. I'll look at it. I'll do what God says. And they would have looked in faith. And they would have been instantly healed. The look of faith. A couple things about Jesus and that bronze serpent. First of all, it was available to everybody. Christ's death on the cross is available for everyone. Amen? Just like that snake on the pole was available for anyone who had ever been bitten. Nobody was excluded. Uh, if they were the mixed multitude people that weren't even of Jewish ancestry, fine. It's available to you too. Whoever, the Jewish, the Gentiles, whoever might have been in that mixed group that came out of Egypt, whoever looks, if you've been bitten, this is available to everybody. Did everybody look? I don't know. I would imagine there's a few people that said, nah, I'd rather die. I'm not going to follow God. Both the cross and the bronze serpent are a reminder of the horror of our sin. Painful. It hurts. That bronze serpent would remind them of the painful bite of that snake. And the cross of Christ, the death of the Son of God, would remind us and still reminds us of the death of God himself. How horrible sin must be that God himself must shed his blood for us. Thirdly, both share this idea of hope for the dying. Christianity, unlike other religions, offers hope for a dying person. All they have to do is look in faith and be saved. They don't have to join a church. They don't have to follow the five pillars. They don't have to go through the six weeks of intensive training. They don't have to make a missionary pilgrimage. They don't have to perform a miracle. They don't have to perform the ordinances or receive the ordinances or be baptized. It's salvation for a dying man. Those Israelites, all they had to do was look. No sacrifice needed. No changing of their clothes. No washing of their face. No any ceremonial requirement. Just look and live. And that's the heart of the gospel of, of Christ today. Look and live. When that thief on the cross believed in his heart that Jesus had done nothing wrong, Christ recognized that act of faith and offered salvation to another thief. Uh, to a thief on the one of the other thieves on the cross, that he would be in paradise, no time to do anything but die, and yet he still had hope. Long as there was life in his lungs, life in his body, there was hope to believe on Jesus. Both of them offered complete salvation, as far as complete healing of all the poison in their bodies. Looking to Christ for salvation completely heals us of all that separates us from God. 
Some have contested that the gospel is just a lie. It's just a made-up story that somebody thought would be nice to tell. But if it is, what a lie it is. It's made countless liars truthful. It's made countless thieves honest. It's turned drunken fathers into hard-working, industrious men. Made selfish people into benevolent humanitarians. It's brought to breaking and broken homes, harmony, healing, and happiness. It's been a light to the blind, wisdom to the foolish, and hope to the hopeless. If it's a lie, what a powerful lie it is. Who is this Jesus of the cross? I want to share a reading that you might see on a Christmas card from time to time. I love, I love how it's worded. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, reared in obscurity, lived in poverty, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born. And that was in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled learned scholars. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes and without medicine made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book. Yet if he did, if everything were written that he had done, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He never founded a college. Yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine. Yet he's healed more broken hearts than doctors have healed broken bodies. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. Truly, Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Gospels, the Christ of history, the crucified and risen Christ, the divine human Christ, is the most real, the most certain, the most blessed fact of history. He is the only solution to the terrible mystery of sin and death, and the only inspiration to a holy life of love, to God and man, and the only guide to happiness and peace. Systems of wisdom may come and go. Kingdoms and empires will rise and fall. But for all time, Jesus of Nazareth remains the way, the truth, and the life. And it's my prayer today that if you do not know him, this Savior, that you will look to him today and be healed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Seemingly obscure passage from the Old Testament and how Christ tore it from obscurity and brought it to the light of day for all of us to see. Healing is available for all through Christ. The cross of Christ makes us aware of our sin, makes us also aware that we have a forgiving God who will forgive even blasphemy against his name and his efforts and can restore us. Father, I pray for anyone here in our assembly this morning that does not know Christ in a personal way. Make him or her aware of his or her sin and the futility of trying to live a happy life apart from God. Reveal to us, make us miserable, Father, till we see the serpent's bite and feel the venom coursing to our veins and understand that our time is short and death is near and we are dying. And in that moment of despair have the hope to turn to the only source of healing, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Lord, heal us, for we are a dying people. 
Lord, as believers, we know that we have been regenerated and renewed and given new life and healing through Christ. And we can obey you, Father, now through the power of the living Jesus living in our lives today. May believers today walk in the Spirit, walk in the light, and demonstrate that Jesus Christ truly is alive in his people here today. And as we approach this Christmas season, Father, may each of us have and see and take advantage of opportunities to tell the good news of what Christmas is all about. The coming of the Savior, that moment in time in which we divide all of human history, B.C. and A.D., that moment in which everything changed, that they will turn to Christ and recognize him for all that he claimed to be. And Father, may most of all, your children not give offense to the lost, that they might turn away from hearing the gospel because of our bad behavior and our sinful lifestyle and our, our foolish words. May we not turn any away by the way we live, but may we point them to Christ. May we adorn the gospel by our speech and our attitudes and our action. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. May the Lord continue working in your hearts and lives. And uh, again, if you'd like to speak with someone about a spiritual need you're going through, feel free to talk with someone here before you leave. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great afternoon.